We now begin Maseches Sota, and this is the general introduction to the Masechta. It'll be brief. Uh, the word Sota means a woman who turned aside or astray, as Rashi says, from the Darche Atznios, from the proper dignified way in which a woman should behave. This is a married woman. Um, I think the basic story of the Sota is pretty familiar to people. It's a woman who is suspected of being adulterous and is given this... Um, drink of bitter waters to to drink, and if indeed she was adulterous, then she dies this horrible death, and if not, then she is vindicated and, you know, goes on to be healthy, happy, um, bearing more children, better-looking children, easier childbirths, and so on. Um, I'm going to go through all the details Bez Hashem shortly and in the Masechta. What I want to do first here, and I think this is really important, is to explain the purpose of this decidedly unusual mitzvah. Okay, as the Ramban points out in this parish in the Chumash, this is the only mitzvah in the Torah which really relies on a miracle. We're using a miracle, um, a nace, to determine whether this woman is or is not um, guilty of some impropriety with another man. Now, why would the Torah have this really unusual scenario? And the answer is, and please hear this, this is important, Hashem wants to reestablish a happy marriage between husband and wife. And the purpose of the entire Sota Parsha is to enable that to happen. So let me explain why and what's going on over here. The case of the Sota, the Sota Suffolk, the woman who's suspected, is a woman in which um, she has both had kinui and stira, meaning that she has been first put on notice by her husband, who says, I see her hanging around with Mr. X, I don't like it. And in front of two witnesses, he, say, he says, you may not be with that man anymore. That's called kinui. After that, two other witnesses report that she had stira. She was secluded with that man behind closed doors um, in a scenario in which they were together long enough that they could have had a relationship. At this point, we have what's called Raglan Ladavar. We have a strong basis to believe something utterly improper has happened. And therefore, the husband and wife can no longer live together as husband and wife because there's very strong grounds to believe that she has been infidelitous. Now, what are their options at this point? Well, first of all, the woman could just say that she had a relationship with this, with this other man, in which case the consequences will be nothing more than she gets divorced, um, she gets her get, and she forfeits her ksuba. That's all, okay? Which isn't good, but it's not extremely terrible um, by any means. The husband is able to, according to Mishnahic law, divorce his wife whenever he wants to, should he decide that in this scenario he doesn't want to divorce her because she's been paved improperly. It's no problem. He can give her a get and get on with his life. So what's happening here is that she is insisting she's innocent, she did nothing wrong, and he doesn't want to divorce her because he still loves her. He wants his marriage to persist. The problem is the halacha ties his hands and the question mark in his head certainly jeopardizes their relationship because she has acted in a way which suggests she's been involved with another man. But he doesn't want to divorce her. But what should he do? He can't sleep with her anymore, he can't live with her anymore, and more than that, even if hypothetically he could, I mean, the relationship is certainly jeopardized because he doesn't trust his wife. 
So Hashem steps in and Hashem says, I'm prepared to even have my name erased, literally, um, which is also highly unusual, um, in order to reestablish trust and happiness between the husband and wife in the scenario where the wife has indeed not been um, infidelitous and things happen that, you know, look terrible or actually aren't terrible. In such a scenario, Hashem is essentially prepared to bear testimony himself in this miraculous way that this woman um, emerges from this whole ordeal unscathed and more than that, she is blessed um, from it so they could live happily ever after as husband and wife and the husband can be um, can rest assured that his wife actually is um, innocent of, of any of the improprieties that it, it seems she may have been involved in and that way they can live happily ever after. So that's why Hashem is doing with the Sota story. So now there's a lot of other things happening around this issue to achieve this end. And most notably, we put a lot of pressure on the woman, um, the suspected Sota, to confess what she did because we don't have miracles. We don't have her to, to die this horrible this horrible death. We don't want um, the name of Hashem to be erased. So because of that, there's a lot of pressure put on her to admit. But if she doesn't admit to the contrary, she sticks to her guns that she's innocent all along. So then... Um, the f- the fear of something terrible happening is necessary so that we'll she'll be um, induced to admit. But uh, notwithstanding that, assuming that you know that's, that's the necessary part of it, but ultimately the purpose is so they can really get back together as a husband and wife. Now, let's talk about the procedure a little bit of actually what, what's happening in more details. Okay, so the parsha itself of Sota is in Bamidbar Perakay. This is that's um, Parshas Naso. It starts from Pasuk Yud Aleph and goes to Pasuk Lamed Aleph. And those 21 psukim are the whole story of Sota from beginning to end, so it's worth reviewing inside from the part of the Rashi, and, and that's that's very important. Um, the The story in terms of procedure is like this. First, the wife has to have kinui. That means she has to, the husband has to suspect her, be literally jealous of her activities, suspicious of her activities, and then put her on a formal notice not to be isolated with this man again um, in front of two witnesses. Then she has stira. Stira is again a seclusion with this man behind closed doors for a duration of time which would make it that possible that they were together in fact. And then um, two witnesses testify that that happened at that point. So now, um, assuming he doesn't want to divorce her, so he takes her to Besden, and he'll take her to Besden and he'll He'll report, he'll say that, um, you know, I, my wife, Kinasi, I put her on warning and um, that she shouldn't be isolated with this man so-and-so again. And yet um, my witness have come and said she was in fact secluded with this man and she insists that she's innocent. No one's, allegation, no one's alleging she did anything. She's insisting she did nothing wrong. So, and now the husband doesn't want to divorce his wife. So he says, let's, I want to clarify the matter using this, miraculous Sota process. So now the local Bezdin will hear that. They will then take her to the Bezdin Hagadol, the, the Sanhedrin in, in Yerushalayim, because the Sota is only administered in Yerushalayim through the Bezdin Hagadol. Remember, this is like a, essentially a, a death a death penalty potentially here. That's not done without it. And it's done in the in the base of Mikdash precincts. So um, first the Bezdin Hagadol tries to, you know, put terrorize the woman to say, listen, this isn't a game. And if you're guilty, just admit it and let's get on with things. We don't want to go through this original. We don't want you to die. We don't want to erase Hashem's name. So they try to get her to realize the severity of the situation and the, you know, the certain death she's facing if if um, if she doesn't, uh, if she's guilty and is denying it falsely. Um, nevertheless, if she insists she's innocent and doesn't back down, so then um, 
And again, all she would do is say, she, if she'd say she's guilty, her only consequence is just divorce and l- losing her ksuba. Nothing more than that, okay? Um, because there's no witnesses of what she did explicitly, so she's not going to get punished worse than that. So if she doesn't, she sticks to her guns, she's innocent. So then they will bring her um, basically to the base of Mikdash, the eastern gate there, called Shar Nikanor. Um, they do make her walk around quite a bit to sort of wear her out because um, they want her to sort of become exhausted and be inclined to just, you know, say, forget it, I admit it, and be done with this, all before the erasing of Hashem's name. Okay, but assuming she doesn't make any such confession, so then um, they they prepare for her a the drink. Okay, the drink um, is put in a in a cheres, a earthenware container that's like an undignified cup, as opposed to like a nice cup, um, you put in it uh, half a lug, basically half, like a basic a cup, you know, 250 cc roughly of water that came from the kior. The kior is the wash basin in it of copper, and the basin mikdash. Um, that's it has to be um, like sanctified water, and that's how you get sanctified water by putting it into a, into a kli like that, a kli in the basin mikdash, kli shars, and. Um, fascinatingly, this is this is an illusion which I think is lost on many people. If you recall, the origins of the copper that was used to make the kior were from the women who wanted to donate the the copper from their essentially their mirrors. Okay, they like burnished copper mirrors. They didn't have glass back then in the time of the of the Mishkan. Um, and Moshe Rabbeinu was was off put, and he thought this is totally inappropriate. Mirrors are used for vanity. Why in the world should that be a donation to the base of Mikdash? He wanted to reject. That is part of the Mishkan's construction. However, Hashem said no. To the contrary, women use these mirrors to beautify themselves in order to have a proper relationship with their husbands and to continue on, um, you know, producing another generation of, of uh, Jews. Even though the situation in in Egypt was so was so bleak, so since that was the exact right way for a woman to use her femininity and the utensil to make that happen was there her mirror. So this is like a great a great tool, and therefore it's used to make the kior, um, the wash basin, which is actually used to purify the hands of the kohanim. So here you have um, things coming full circle where we're saying, no, instead, that, that utensil, the kior, is being used now um, to remind this woman of what the proper use of femininity is, and this is certainly not that. Now, they then take some, like some of the dirt from the floor in the mishkan, um, the mikdash, the, the, it, it, depending on, you know, and um, they put that into the cup, there is a bit of a discussion about the, the sukkim refer to the waters as being bitter waters. So some like Rashi learn that it's bitter because it ends up being bitter for her. Others learn, um, like the Ram, that it actually has to be put something in it to make it taste bitter. Um, so maybe they add, so let's say halacha, they add some like a bitter herb to this water to make it taste bitter, to fill the pasuk that it's mei hamarim, bitter waters. And then they, they put the woman basically saying at Sharnikon or the eastern gate, um, they're going to take her clothing, they're going to tear her clothing down, like rip down her shirt, um, so she's exposed, um, and then they tie it up, but the point is she's just been dis- disgraced here. Similarly, they mess up her hair, they uncover her hair, um, and uh, and like unbraid her hair, if it was braided and so on. That, by the way, the the exposing of her hair really is the basis for the halacha that a dignified Jewish woman should have her hair covered, not uncovered. The uncovering the hair indicates that's how an undignified woman goes. That's the basis for hair coverings in, in Jewish law. Um, so this woman now stands sort of like, you know, sort of uh, disgraced and disheveled at this entrance of the gate. Again, they try to get her to convince, but if she doesn't, so then they'll take her 
her offering. There's an offering that's going to be brought. Her husband pays for it. It's an offering that's brought. Um, it's called like a mincha for canals for jealousy. Um, it's a highly unusual offering. It's made of kemach, says the Pasuk, which is flour, of course, but that is not the usual flour that's used in the menachos. Usually menachos are made from soles, fine flour. This is kemach. It's like coarse flour. It's un- unrefined because her behavior is unrefined. And it's also made from not the usual grain of wheat, which is like the the refined food, the desired food. Instead, it's made of barley flour. Barley is considered to be like animal food. And the other menachos are not made, putting aside the the Omer, which is a different story for a different time. Um, we don't use barley as menachos, but she does because her she's acted sort of beastily, like an animal, if you will. Um, and therefore, again, she has this very degraded sort of offering. Addition, there's, in addition, there's no oil put in it, and there's no frankincense put on it. There's normally no menachos, again, to not dignify this, this offering. So basically, it's just coarse barley flour. Um, she's going to hold it. And then they're going to, while she's holding it, they're going to make her swear, essentially, that she did nothing wrong. There's specific words. Those specific words are the words of the, the sukkum demand. Um, and they're the words that end up being on the on the parsha, which is erased in a moment. Um, so they, they they read the whole sukkum out to Im lo shachav ish osach, v'im lo satis tumatachas isheich. If you didn't do anything wrong, then, uh, then hinaki mimei hamarim, hamarim ha'ila, then you'll be, you know, innocent from these these bitter waters that um, cause affliction and so on. Um, but another thing, if you did something wrong, if you did satis, you did turn astray, that's again the word sot, like I said before, from your husband, so then, and etc., etc., then you will be cursed and bad things will happen to you. Okay? And uh, ends by saying that um, the consequences will be also latzbos beten belinpol yarech, her her st- and abdomen abdomen will distend, will, ex- will expand out, and her thigh will collapse. Okay, that's the end of it. Now she says amen, amen. Excuse me, amen, amen. She says yes. She agrees to that. She agrees that she did nothing wrong, both to the shvua that she's innocent, as well as to the curse that she'll get it if she's guilty. She commits that confirms that she did nothing wrong with this man or any other man, whether during the nesuin period when they were like living husband and wife, or previously when she was just in Arusa and so on, she's totally clean. Okay? She sticks to that. At that point, um, the the Kohen will write those psukim we just said on a parchment, since those psukim include the Shem Hashem, so the Shem Hashem is there, and then he'll erase that parchment into the water, the bitter water, so Hashem's name gets erased, and into that water now, which has the ashes and the parchment with blotted out erased water in it, so then we give this to the woman to drink. Now, once she drinks the water, um, so then um, the Kohen will now um, take her her uh, her mincha, her offering, so it goes into a klisharis, to like a vessel, it does hagasha, it's brought um, to touch the southwest corner of the Mizbeach. Um, they do Oh, you know, they, I, sorry. Before that, they do they do a, a tanufa. He puts his hand into her hands, and they wave it like in the six directions, like we do a lulav, waving in all directions. Then um, there's the hagasha, and there's the haktara, a kamitza is like a whatever you call it, a fistful of the three fingers, really amount or whatever of of the offering is put on the back and burnt. Okay, then she then um, we see what happens if indeed the woman was guilty of. Adultery. So then, immediately after she drinks her water and they bring the korban, she's going to basically start to start to die. And they rush her out of the base of mikdash so she shouldn't die there and like metama the place. Um, 
And um, if not, so then she's going to be checked and come out innocent and nothing will happen to her. Uh, the Mishnah speaks out that the same way the waters punish her, they also punish the adulterer. So if this woman was adulterous and she's going to end up dying this horrible death, um, so too will the man with whom she was involved. He also gets it. Um, and if not... So then she did not, there's no man, of course, she is innocent. So then um, she essentially gets blessed by the waters. She's strengthened by the waters. Um, she has less painful or not painful pregnancies. She has more beautiful children with this new husband, and they can reestablish their relationship and live together happily ever after. Okay, so that's the base of the story of the Sota in a nutshell, and the and the Psukim bear that out, um, and the Mishnahis as well. Now, just in terms of structure of the Masechta, so there are a total of nine prakim here. The first three prakim talk about the proce- the procedure of the sota, kind of like how I, I just did, um, how it all works and the rules there. Then prakim four, five, and six talk about the legal consequences of a woman being a sota. For example, um, the husband can't be living with her while she's suspected. We treat her as if she's been adulterous because there's a good basis for that, so they can't sleep together yet. Um, and if she were married to a Cohen, she can't eat truma and so on. Okay, so there's that. And then in the seventh parak, we talk about there's um, an obligation for her to understand the curse. So it could be administered either in Lashon Kodesh, Hebrew, from the Pesukim, if she understands them. If not, if she, you know, only speaks French, then it'll be done for her in French. Now, that point of departure brings us to lots of other topics about when you're making declarations in foreign, foreign languages and so on. So that's the seventh parak. Um, the eighth parak also only tenuously connected, gives us a variety of halachas of, of milchama, of going out to war. And then the ninth parak, which is actually very long, I think that's 15, 15 mishnayas, um, much of it is going further afield, more of topic, talking about a different topic of the egla arufa, the decapitated calf, um, that procedure which is done in the consequence of finding a, a, a body, um, a dead body, um, and we don't know we don't know what happened to this person who killed him. Um so that is really the structure of the Masechta in, in a nutshell. There's a lot going on, of course, in details. And Be'ez HaShem, we now will see the details and we'll start the Masechta in earnest with the first parak of Masechta Sota.